This week in the Dan Cave, we have football, real football. The NFL season kicked off last night, and the Seahawks get set to make their debut in Atlanta Sunday. I'll recap their final roster, give you my thoughts on that, and my annual season record prediction is on tap. And what has John Schneider's greatest failure as a GM been? One of the roster moves shines the spotlight on one of his few shortcomings yet again. The Dan Cave Podcast fantasy team has been drafted. I'll unveil it and tell you how you can get involved. All that, my NFL upset pick of the week, and I'll catch you up on a roller coaster week for the Mariners next on the Dan Cave Podcast. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vienz. Welcome back into the Dan Cave, everyone. Hope you had a fantastic Labor Day weekend. This weekend's going to be fantastic because we have football. Did you watch the game last night? Texans at Chiefs. Uh, Big win for the Chiefs. Couple of thoughts right off the bat. First of all, I thought it was really strange the first time they showed a crowd shot. I, I hadn't read specifically whether or not fans were going to be allowed last night. I hadn't paid attention to that. I know some states are and some aren't. I'll get into that in a minute. But I, I guess I wasn't expecting it. I, I was really fascinated to see what the game would look like and what it would feel like watching it. But right off the bat, as soon as they went down to the field, you know, they showed a shot of the crowd. And, and the first shot that I saw was of a group of people that seemed pretty close together. And it's it's we've been in this bizarre bubble for the last six months, seven months, whatever it's been. And it's even watching fictional television shows, let alone a football game with real people happening live, seeing people crowded together it just immediately made me feel really, really uncomfortable. You know, we've we've gotten so defensive about this, um, you know, and, and protective of ourselves. And, and so we're just hyper aware to, of all this. And so seeing it just made me cringe, really. And then I saw some shots later and... And because at first, the first wide shot I saw, it looked like, wow, there's a lot more people there than I thought. It looks like 40, 50 percent. And then you realize there's a lot of cardboard cutouts that were kind of interspersed among the groups of people. Um, about 20 percent capacity, I think, is what they allowed. The uh, paid attendance last night was just under 16,000. Um, and I think Arrowhead holds 70,000. So, um it was it was nice to hear crowd noise and and the Kansas City crowd when that when Arrowhead's full they're the loudest crowd in the in the league that's documented sorry 12s Seahawk fans it's it's true they beat us they're consistently the loudest and they haven't lost anything over the years like we have here that's another subject for another day um so so that was good from an atmosphere standpoint i still find it a little disconcerting that some teams are going to have that advantage and some aren't. We aren't here in Seattle, at least for the first three games it's been announced. There are other other areas, um, other teams that aren't going to allow fans and have announced some of those things. I, I think I'll have to check again. I don't think there are going to be fans this Sunday in Atlanta for the Seahawks and Falcons. Um, so that'll be our first experience with what that will look like. But at least there was some ambiance 
provided by the crowd. The football on the field was shockingly good. It was sharp. It was physical. Guys were hitting, flying around. Players looked instinctive, not hesitant. It was a clean game, only six penalties, five on the Texans, only one on the Chiefs. So this whole narrative that things were going to be sloppy week one because there was no preseason, no preseason games, well, that's out the window. And and you're really, if we see more football like this on Sunday and Monday, you're going to hear a growing narrative that, which is exactly what the players are hoping for, that preseason is unnecessary. Certainly, a four-game preseason is unnecessary. I don't know if that can be changed under the new CBA, if there's an allowance for that or not. And certainly, when that subject comes up formally, at some point, the owners are going to counter with, as they have been for a couple of years now, sure, we'll shorten the preseason, but we want to lengthen the regular season, expand the playoffs, all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying... I think for a while now, as I used to love the preseason, but it hasn't been the same for 10-plus years. I do believe you need a couple of formally produced games, let's say two, so that you can really flush out some of the deeper roster spots and give rookies a chance to play and some of the undrafted guys and some of the younger veterans a chance to play, improve themselves, and really find out what you have at the bottom of the roster. But you don't need four games. You don't need to get your veterans ready. They can get ready just like college teams do without playing games. So that was kind of cool to see. A couple other thoughts on last night. The Chiefs just look great. Um, I think it was Matthew Barry um, that has said uh, time and time again this preseason that it's possible we could see the Chiefs just roll the league this year, similar to what we saw um, during the Randy Moss year in uh, New England. Uh, when they went undefeated before losing the Super Bowl to the Giants. What year was that? Was that 10 years ago? They just have so many weapons. And now the defense has not caught up to the offense, but it has, you know, two years ago that defense was a liability. And the Chiefs needed to score 50 every week to have a chance to win. Not the case anymore. Pretty solid on defense. And I think everyone will agree today that the the biggest impression you come away with from watching that game last night is the rookie running back out of LSU, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, is a legitimate star as a rookie. He, it, It's rare when this happens. He got so much hype this preseason, ever since being the 32nd pick in the draft to the Chiefs. From the moment he was drafted, what a perfect fit. How did the league allow Andy Reid to get this guy? And then if you're a fantasy player, you've heard it over and over and over again. This guy has a rookie. He's a first-round draft pick. He could be a league winner for you. It's rare when those guys live up to that, but he showed everything that we were expecting to see from him. Caught the ball well, ran it hard, broke tackles, left some jock straps on the ground with some of his moves. He didn't need a preseason. Um, I have four fantasy football teams this year, and my biggest fantasy mistake, as much as I think I went into every draft with a good strategy, I think I executed it fairly well for the most part. Some things didn't go my way. I got sniped on a few things, but I think my overall plan was solid. My execution was solid in all all four cases. 
but I have one major mistake that I made in my fantasy drafting this year. I have zero Chiefs. Zero in any league. <laughs> things just didn't fall my way uh, in most cases, but maybe I should have forced some things. I was looking for Kelsey with my second pick in a couple leagues. Didn't happen. Um, I was hoping I'd get Clyde Edwards in a couple leagues. That didn't happen. Um, thought about kind of getting aggressive for Hardman later in some leagues, but just didn't go my way. Uh, lots of attention last night paid also by the players and the league uh, to their commitment to bringing attention to social justice and equality issues. Love the gesture by the players to lock arms both teams at midfield. Um, I like their explanation after the game of uh, why they all stayed in the locker room for the anthem. They just didn't want that to be a distraction. They didn't want the discussion to be about who stood and who kneeled for the anthem. They wanted the discussion to be about the unity of both teams locking arms during the moment of silence after that. I thought that was inspired. I thought it was great. Lots of packages and messages produced by the league. It's nice to see that so far it hasn't just been lip service on their part. The league is very diverse. That league is built on the backs of minorities in a lot of ways. Um, and it has a unique spotlight, it has a massive spotlight. And it's great to see them using it. And if you don't like it, <laughs> I had a couple discussions on Twitter last night and then just had to put the phone down. Uh, if you're in the stick to sports crowd, I don't watch football to listen to politics. Well, then you may as well just not listen to this podcast because uh, we disagree that much. And I'm not going to always stick to sports. So let's talk about the Seahawks coming up 10 a.m. Pacific time Sunday in Atlanta. Um. And the biggest change, I guess, since last week, other than the roster being finalized, is no Jadevian Clowney. I was optimistic there was still a chance last week, but now it seems like they just weren't in it at all at the end. Um, that the Charles Robinson report was inaccurate, that it was down to the Titans and the Seahawks. Um, I think that may have been leaked to Robinson by Clowney's camp to try and spur the Titans uh, to action, and he did end up signing with the Titans. Um, it sounds like there was no last-ditch effort from the Seahawks, um, and he ends up signing with the Titans for less than the Seahawks' final offer in uh, over the summer. So he lost money by waiting. Um, still a good situation for him. He's familiar with Mike Vrabel and his um, schemes. Uh, Vrabel is the linebacker coach at Houston. When Clowney was there, the Seahawks signed to Montre Moore just before Clowney signed. A solid, youngish vet that they're familiar with plays that five technique. Um, Carroll confirmed a couple of days ago what I had said a month ago. That if Clowney didn't come back, what they were going to say was, and they may truly believe this, that they feel better about what they have than a lot of us do. They feel better about Collier and Green at the five technique then most people want to believe. It's it's easy to forget. It's been 15 months, but Collier was drafted in the first round to be a base defensive end, a five technique, stout against the run, strong at the point of attack. And then they fortified the Leo position, which Clowney wasn't going to play anyway with Benson Mayo and Bruce Irvin, Alton Robinson, and Daryl Taylor in the draft. They claimed DeAndre Walker as a rush-end type linebacker hybrid. Uh, on waivers this week, they feel better about what they have at end. And I will say this, as far as overall talent and depth 
at the two end spots, they're in better shape than they were a year ago. It's just that a year ago they had Clowney. At this time last year, they had made the move to get Clowney. But they were counting on Ziggy Ansa as the second end last year. Now they have five guys that could contribute. We'll see how that works out. Um, some thoughts on the final roster. Not dramatically different than what I posed to you last week. I was right that teams were fairly conservative. Um, teams also were not aggressive in picking up players off of waivers and making late changes. So we didn't see that big, splashy move by Schneider or many other GMs at all. And and this really worked in the Seahawks' advantage and to other teams as well, that they were allowed to move, they were able to move all of their young players that they liked onto the expanded practice squad. So the practice squad looks really solid. All those young guys you heard such good things about during camp made it through to the practice squad. Um, some of the differences in my prediction last week and what happened, they ended up cu- cutting Paul Richardson. I have to believe that he just injuries had taken a toll and he didn't show enough in that one week. They kept Lano Hill. I wasn't expecting that. Um, initially, they kept John Ursua after raving about him all summer camp. And then they cut him, but he made it back on the practice squad. They elevated Penny Hart in his place. There's some thought that Hart may have a little more versatility as a return guy. Um, but that's a surprising move that Penny Hart's going to go to Atlanta and not John, John Ursua after everything we heard about him during training camp. Um, Phil Haynes ended up on injured reserve. That's a disappointment, but a lot more flexibility on IR this year. He can come back at some point this year. So they're really counting on Mike Upati. But they have some flexibility there. B.J. Finney can play both guard spots. Jamarco Jones had an outstanding camp and can play guard. Um, the biggest storyline on offense is that Ethan Posick has been handed the starting center job. Uh, a lot of people have taken this as, well, Finney's a bust. That was a bad free agent signing. Um, I'd pump the brakes on that. Finney's a solid player, has always graded out well. His versatility is huge, can play both guards and center. Sounds like he just had some trouble picking up the playbook. And the Seahawks weren't confident throwing him in there. I like that. Posick was a second-round draft pick two years ago. When he was drafted, Brock Heward said, and remember we had gone through this long line of offensive linemen and converts and Tom Cable projects that didn't work out and Fetty and other draft picks that were busts and Heward at the time said you guys are going to love Ethan Posick like he's technically sound he's so much more advanced than any offensive lineman the Seahawks have drafted in the last few years you're going to love him and many felt that the Seahawks were doing him a disservice by moving him around trying to make him that super sub that he had even played some some right tackle at LSU that he belonged at center And from day one, he was better than Finney this offseason. Healthy. Feels like he still hasn't proven anything yet, which is a great attitude to have. But that's really going to be the key to this offensive line being as good as it needs to be for this team to contend. Ethan Posick needs to be good. If he's not, it sounds like the Seahawks are ready to pull the trigger. And they may anyway on Justin Britt. They've had him in twice. Um, he went and visited another team this week. I can't remember who at the moment, but um, there's some thought that they will sign Britt next week when he won't be a vested veteran because it'll be after week one. 
um, maybe to the practice squad. I, I, I sure hope they don't give up on B.J. Finney at this point. I don't think they will, but Justin Britt is an option, probably more so if Posick struggles. But that'll certainly be something that we'll have an eye on on Sunday. My biggest concern about the roster is still defensive tackle. It's not end, and I've told you why. It's defensive tackle. It's Jaron Reed, Puna Ford, and then, ish. If Reed in particular gets hurt, that unit is just not going to be good enough. If Puna Ford gets hurt, Brian Monet can fill in. They have some intriguing young guys on the practice squad. We don't know what DeMarcus Christmas can give you. They still have cap space. There's still some veteran free agents on the street. But if Reed gets hurt, I mean, they're putting a lot. They're putting a lot of hope on Jaron Reed this year. They paid him early on. They gave him a good two-year deal. And at the time, that was some money that could have been used to bring Clowney back. They're really counting on on him this year. He needs to stay healthy for this defense to be as good as it could be. Um, the most fascinating roster decision is what happened at quarterback. I'm not talking about Geno Smith. He was going to be the backup. He's cheap. He's a veteran. He's solid. He had another good camp. He's a, he's a dependable backup. But they chose Danny Etling as the third quarterback on the practice squad over Anthony Gordon, who they paid priority undrafted free agent money to this year to sign out of Washington State. Um, by all accounts, he had a solid camp. Struggled in the mock games, but looked good in practices. But Danny Etling is intriguing enough. 6'3", 220, second year out of LSU. He was a starter at LSU in 16 and 17. Uh, 17 after transferring from Purdue. He was very efficient in college. A 144 rating, 27 to 7 touchdown to interception ratio. Mobile, runs well for a guy his size. Drafted in the seventh round by New England. Had some good moments in preseason, including an 86-yard touchdown run. Um, But they moved him to wide receiver in 2019 and then waived him. And then Atlanta picked him up. And then when he was waived this year, the Seahawks claimed him. He's mobile. He's efficient. He can run the zone zone read. There's, there's a lot to like about him. But he doesn't have a great arm. It is next to impossible to find video of him dropping back, sticking his foot in the grass, and firing a bullet down the seam, making making that NFL throw that you need to make. It's hard to find. A lot of scrambling around, a lot of easy little touch passes. Even his deep balls have a little flutter on them. Gordon had the better arm of the two, clearly. But the Seahawks have shown a hesitance. I, not even a hesitance. A fear just a downright fear of committing any development time to young quarterbacks at all. The closest they came was when they drafted Alex Magoo 
out of Florida International a couple years ago. They kept him on the practice squad all year long and then lost him in the offseason, wanted to sign him to a futures contract and give him a second year to develop. Lost him to the Jags because he thought he might actually have a chance to be on their active roster there, and then he's bounced around a couple times, and he's out of the league. I will say this about John Schneider. I love the guy. I love him as a dude, and I love him as a GM. I really do. But he's not perfect. And I don't think there's any question that his biggest failing as a general manager is his inability to identify, acquire, and develop a young quarterback behind Russ in the, the entire time he's been here. And what makes it even more frustrating is, is we've heard him over and over and over again talk about learning from Ron Wolf coming up as a young executive in the Green Bay organization and what they did with quarterbacks. And you draft one every year. One year they drafted two. And you keep developing them because you never know what's going to happen with your starter, first of all. You have to have another guy ready. It also controls your payroll and your costs. But it also gives you assets. They traded Aaron Brooks and Mark Brunel and Ty Detmer, Matt Flynn. Well, Flynn signed as a free agent. But they were able to to get some, some assets from those guys. The Patriots are another good example. Look what they got for Jimmy Garoppolo, Jacoby Brissett. It's like free money, and the Seahawks are just ignoring that. Every year. And, and they'll, they'll say after the draft, we were, we were hunting for a guy, but it just didn't go our way. Meanwhile, they're drafting four offensive linemen, and none of them end up in the league three years later. They're drafting all these extra safeties that aren't on the roster currently. Drafting linebacker after linebacker after linebacker, yet they keep K.J. Wright at $8 million, even though they've invested heavily in linebacker drafts the last two years, and that money could have gone to bringing back Clowney. Roster construction also leaves a lot to be desired, but that's another subject again for another day. We could do a whole episode on that, and I will at some point this season. But failure to develop a young quarterback behind Russ consistently has been a a black mark on Schneider's resume. And he's got a guy as his offensive coordinator slash quarterback coach, Schottenheimer, for whatever you may think of him as a play caller, There's no question about how good he is at developing quarterbacks. He got the most out of Brissett when he was in Indianapolis. He got the most out of Mark Sanchez early in his career. He's done some good things. Look what he's done with Russ the last two years. His footwork, the way he moves in the pocket, his decision-making on when to pull the ball down and run. Even his delivery's been cleaned up a little bit. Those were things that were really frustrating in, in Russell's game even as he became a superstar, and Schottenheimer connected with him and got him to improve in those areas. Now, obviously, you know that I'm a Coug, and so I was really pulling for Anthony Gordon to be the practice squad guy. Um, I hope he gets an opportunity in the league, or at the very least, uh, I think he'd be a great candidate for the XFL if that really is going to work and be back in the spring. But the only reason I like Etling is I do think you can do some Taysom Hill-type things with him. But you'd have to use a third roster spot, and you'd have to commit to that. 
They tried doing that with Seneca Wallace, didn't work. They tried doing it with B.J. Daniels, didn't work, because they never committed to it. You'd see a play here and there, and then they wouldn't stick with it. So I, I, I don't really see it amounting to anything. And here's my last thought on the roster. Uh, Nick bleeping Belore Again, I got all excited because they cut him at first, then they brought him back two days later. A waste of a roster spot. You could use that spot for Danny Etling and do some cool things on offense or an extra defensive tackle. Uh, you've heard me talk about it before. I won't waste your time today. Nick Bloor should not be on this roster. Um, final thing, will we see less base defense out of them? That's the big question heading into Sunday. K.J. Wright kind of hinted at it. He said, I'm not going to give away the game plan, but we need to get our best players on the field, and Marquise Blair is one of our best players. So I think we're going to see more nickel. Nickel may even be their new base with, with some of the roster moves they've made. That would make sense. It would also make sense with the with the lack of depth at tackle because some of those ends can move inside. Um, Quentin Dunbar still up in the air. Hasn't been suspended by the league yet, but they also haven't announced that they're not going to suspend him. The league is kind of dragging their feet on some of these things. Seahawks brought Josh Gordon back last week. Still haven't heard if he's going to be activated or not. Uh, Dunbar's been banged up. Um, but he did practice finally at full speed Wednesday, so we may actually see Trey Flowers on the field as the starter, quote-unquote, to begin the game. But Pete Carroll raved about Dunbar as a player earlier this week, and he usually doesn't spend that much time talking about a guy's upside unless he plans a big role for him. So, um, But he should be active on Sunday, it sounds like. Every year I try to predict the season. Um, usually I do it in written form, but I'm not contributing to any websites this year. Um, so I'm just going to kind of run through it. Usually I go game by game, but that's harder than ever to do this year because we haven't seen anything from these teams, right? So I think within within the division, it's a very good division, I think they'll split with the 49ers and Rams in some way, shape, or form. As much as I'd like to think they can sweep the Rams, there's a lot of talent down there. Same with the 49ers. They always play the 49ers well, but they usually play them really tight. You know, one play, one way or the other can make a difference in the game. So I think they'll sweep with those two. Or, I mean, split with those two. I'm sorry. And I think they'll sweep the cards. But, man, I got to tell you, there's an asterisk next to this. I thought strongly, and they could very possibly go 3-3 and in their division. The Cardinals are vastly improved. And as much as I wasn't a fan of the Kingsbury hire and still am not sold 100%, we'll see. We'll see how he manages players, manages the roster, how he evolves that offense. But there was a lot to like last year, and they should be much better on defense this year. And you've heard me say I wasn't a huge Kyler Murray fan. But there's a lot to like about him, too. And... I think the reason they'll sweep the cards is I think the Seahawks went out the last year, really the last two years, in some of their drafts and acquisitions and, and you know, with Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams coming on board and some of the things they're going to do scheme-wise this year. I think they've done all that to match up better with these offenses within the division, and I think they'll match up better with the Cardinals. I see wins over the Falcons on Sunday. Uh, the Patriots in Week 2 here with Cam Newton now at quarterback. Still just some question marks about New England's offense. Uh, wins over the Falcons, Patriots, Dolphins, Vikings have had their number. 
recently. Eagles, same thing. Giants and Jets, Redskins, uh, really strong finishing schedule. I see losses to the Cowboys and Bills. Can they beat both those teams? Absolutely. And the Cowboys game is here. But they're loaded. And I think the Bills in Buffalo, very good defense, strong running game. Um, I certainly don't see the Seahawks going 16-0, and so I had to pick some losses somewhere. So that puts them at 12-4. and And 11-12 to win sounds about right. Now, if you told me they were going to commit to letting Russ cook and being more aggressive offensively early in games, I would tell you that it's 12 to 13 wins. I think it can make that big a difference. Because if you let them dictate things early on offense and get some leads, it takes the pressure off of that young defensive front. And it puts more of the spotlight on that fantastic secondary. Because teams are going to have to play catch-up. And they're going to throw the football more. And Adams and Diggs and Shaq. And those guys can kind of hunt a little bit. And the young pass rushers can pin their ears back. So, I think the floor with this team is nine wins. If A lot would have to go wrong. But I think the ceiling is 13-14. We shall see, and it all starts Sunday in Atlanta. Let's talk some fantasy football. So, as I told you, four teams this year, uh, two live ones, and then two that I drafted on on ESPN. Um, And one one of the live ones that I've been a member of for quite quite some time, I, I named the team after the podcast last year. And so I thought I would honor you guys and, and get you involved this year. Um, and I took a little bit different approach to this draft than I did my other live draft. Um, in my other one uh, with guys that I work with, it's a 12-teamer. I had the 12th pick, so I had the back-to-back picks on the turn. I had to be more conservative, take running backs early, kind of stick to some of my old um, some of my old rules. But this one I was a little more aggressive and had some more fun with. It's, it's a 10-team PPR league and I drew the fifth pick. And so I purposely wanted to break some of those rules. So with the fifth pick, um, I'm just kind of going to, I'm going to go through just uh, um, the first 11 rounds, let you know kind of what the bulk of the roster looks like and then how you can help me week to week. So with the fifth pick, I went Michael Thomas. I could have gone Cook or Kamara, major question marks about both those guys, durability and contract. Um, this league, as opposed to my 12 team league, this league, uh, there are some owners that don't follow kind of the consensus rules. So Mahomes went second. So Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, Ezekiel Elliott were all gone. I went Michael Thomas. And the reason was simple. I thought I could get a decent running back with my second pick and I wanted an elite wide receiver. I always go running backs early and then tap into wide receiver depth later. But this time I wanted an elite receiver. And I got the best one in the NFL, Michael Thomas. Second round, I went Josh Jacobs over Chris Carson, Kenyon Drake, Aaron Jones. Because I think, even though there's some questions about his shoulder, he's he's the clear-cut number one, and he's going to get tons of volume. He's going to be the feature back there. 
Third round, rather than go with my second running back again, I wanted to be a little more aggressive and break my rules a little bit. And so I went George Kittle. Again, I wanted an elite player. I wanted to take tight end two behind Kelsey over running back 15. You know, James Conner, Kareem Hunt, David Johnson were still there. Um, receivers, Chris Godwin, Cooper Cup, Devontae Adams went right behind me. I wanted Kittle. Fourth round, then I had to come back and get my second running back, and I went Jonathan Taylor. I took Jonathan Taylor in three out of my four leagues. He may not be the clear-cut number one week one. He's going to share that job with Marlon Mack. But when he takes over the job, he is an elite talent, and behind that offensive line, he's going to be a bell cow. And so I wanted to get him uh, and his upside over some of those other guys and the question marks that come with them. Uh, in the fifth round, again, broke another rule. I usually am one of the last guys to take a starting quarterback, but I had my eye on Dak Prescott. In the fifth round, I thought, um, I thought you know, basically your number three fantasy quarterback, three or four, depending on where you f- view him fitting in with Russell. He went two spots before me, but Kyler Murray was still there. Talked a little bit about him already. I just think the volume is going to be so huge for him and the opportunity for him to put up points down there with the Cardinals. We could see a Lamar Jackson-like, or maybe it's Lamar jackson light second-year explosion from him with DeAndre Hopkins and better, better weapons and improved offensive line, a better defense, and with what he can do with his legs. Um, this is a league that allows you a six full points for... Passing touchdowns for quarterbacks. So I went with Murray there in the fifth round. Then I had to come back around and get a second receiver in the sixth round. Keenan Allen, I know there's questions about him with Tyrod Taylor throwing to him, but he's a clear-cut number one, just got paid like it. Um, Tyler's better than people think, and I think he's going to look for Allen number one over anyone else. Um, After that, I gambled on a ton of rookie upside. Rather than go with veterans with question marks, I went with rookies who could blow up. And I kind of loaded up on these guys. Seventh round, I went Antonio Gibson. And I did that based on Adrian Peterson's comments when he was cut. He basically said, Gibson's everything they want in a lead back, and that's why they're cutting me. That cleared up a lot of questions for me. In the eighth round, I went Cam Akers. Now, are the Rams going to go with Daryl Henderson or Cam Akers? Don't know. But at some point, Akers is the more talented guy, and Henderson's had some injury issues. Sean McVay likes to use one running back. Look how he featured Todd Gurley. At some point, that could be Akers, and if it is, this guy could win the league for us. Ninth round, Julian Edelman. I think even with Cam there, he's going to be his number one guy. He's going to catch a lot of balls, and this is a full PPR league. In the 10th round, Christian Kirk had over 90 targets last year, and he missed a couple games with injury. I think the volume is going to be there for him to potentially be a good, solid PPR receiver. And in the 11th, again, rookie upside, J.K. Dobbins. If Mark Ingram gets hurt on that, the number one rushing offense in the league, and Dobbins takes over, he could be a league winner. So early on, I love you know the high-ranked elite players that I got at receiver and tight end, one of the top five quarterbacks. I like that. One of the top seven or eight running backs. And then I love the upside of all the rookies. We're just going to have to hash that out as it goes. Later on, I got some good value, I thought, at the wide receiver position. Deontay Johnson from Pittsburgh, John Brown, Austin Hooper is my second tight end, 
I got Anthony Miller, the Bears, who had nine. Uh, he had 70 targets, I think, last year, 70 or 80 targets. Got him in the 17th round. So opening day lineup, uh, quarterback's a little tough. My backup's Daniel Jones, who I like, but he's facing the Pittsburgh defense. Kyler Murray's facing San Francisco. I'm I'm going to go with Murray just because he's the clear-cut number one guy on this roster, but also what he can do with his legs, even if San Francisco shuts down that offense a little bit. Uh, Jacobs running back for sure, and then the second running back, Jonathan Taylor or Antonio Gibson. Gibson can figure into the flex discussion as well. Wide receiver, Thomas and Allen, tight end Kittle, of course. Flex is kind of up in the air. It could be Edelman. It could be Gibson, as I said. Deontay Johnson, even against the Giants secondary, who struggled last year and was counting on DeAndre Baker this year and just cut him. Um, so what I'm going to do is this. Anytime I have a tough decision to make, I will post a poll on my Twitter feed, at Seahawks Forever, and leave it up to you guys. And you guys make the pick on who to play, and then we'll come back and recap it next week, and I'll either love you or not so much. So we'll see. <laughs> I'm going to give you a long leash, though, and we'll see how that goes. I've learned a big lesson. I I don't love what this lineup looks like for week one. Uh, the guy I'm going up against has Dalvin Cook and Joe Mixon, Devontae Adams and Allen Robinson, and he's already got 19 at his flex position because he started David Johnson. He's got Big Ben as his quarterback against the Giants. That's a tough matchup. I'm projected to lose, but I've learned this, and I, I learned it more so than ever two years ago in this same league. It's not how you draft, it's how you manage the team week to week. I started 1-5 in 2018 and won the title. Um, for my NFL picks this week, I want to tell you again about TallySite. TallySite.com. It's T-A-L-L-Y-S-I-G-H-T. Go there now. It's free. It's a quick registration. Sign up for an account, and it lets you view over 230 expert picks. We're talking about the guys from ESPN and NFL Network and all the national publications. And it shows you on the front page what the consensus picks of uh, all these guys combined are for the NFL. For example, 98% of them pick the Colts over the Jags. Incidentally, 75% of them, like the Seahawks, over Atlanta this week. And he, you can actually see my individual picks, and then as the weeks go on, you'll be able to see how I stack up against them. For my page, um, you can either just type Dan Viennes, that's V-I-E-N-S, in to the search bar, or you can go to tallysite.com backslash expert backslash Dan hyphen Viennes. Um, and you can see all my picks there. Uh, I did pick one upset special this week. I pretty much stayed chalk the rest of the way again. Not a lot to go on. Um, but I got the Bengals over the Chargers this week, which I think the expert consensus on there was about 70% Chargers. I just think in Cincinnati, no fans in the stands, weird ambiance. Taylor's first game with the Chargers. Uh, heard some great things about how Joe Burrow looks and all those weapons back and A.J. Green being healthy in that running game and improved offensive line in Cincinnati, and they still have a solid defense. This could be an opportunity for the Bengals um, to start off with a win. And we saw how well they played on offense against the Seahawks last year with Zach Taylor running that offense. So, but check out tallysite.com. Again, it's free. Sign up. It's really easy. Um, and if you have a podcast or contribute to a website or do any writing or, or are in any way considered an expert, um, you can submit 
as well and get on there and get your own profile and make your picks. Let's talk a little bit about baseball before we go. Uh, The week started with the Mariners in playoff contention. And I was planning on talking in this episode about how that might be realistic. And is it really possible? And is it a good thing or a bad thing? They had moved to within two games of the eighth and final playoff spot held by the Yankees, who were struggling and falling apart. They had won 10 out of 13, but then they dropped both games in a very smoky San Francisco, giving up 16 runs. The pitching staff fell apart. Uh, some of it was bad luck. LJ Newsom uh, looked good early. We got hit on the hand by a comebacker. Um, doesn't sound like he is going to miss a start or that it's anything serious, which is good because I thought he broke his hand at the time. Really put a lot of stress on the bullpen, and you're talking about that bullpen has changed dramatically in the last month now because of trades and injuries. We're talking about having to rely on guys like Seth Frankoff, Walter Lockett, Jimmy Akabonis, and Brady Lale. Exactly. So uh, things appear to be falling apart a little bit there. Still a fun team to watch. Still lots of bright spots. Kyle Lewis at 307. Um, leading Lewis, uh, Luis Roberts of the White Sox in just about every category for AL Rookie of the Year. If he doesn't win it, if things stay about the same, if he doesn't win it, it's uh, it's a media market thing. He should win it. Um, Ty France, since coming over from the Padres in that trade, Early last week has looked great. He's played DH, second, third. He's hitting 333 with the Mariners with a double and a triple. Um, you can see the hit tool there. Luis Torrens has become the regular catcher, as Jerry Depoto had promised. He's caught five games. He's been very solid defensively. He has a double among his four hits. He's hitting 222. And to me, the most fun about watching this team right now, other than the starting pitching, which has been great, is Evan White. I told you a month ago when he started out hitting 108, not to worry, that you could see by the way he was handling his struggles and handling his at-bats, you could see he was going to be okay. He was just making an adjustment to Major League Baseball after having never played even at the AAA level. Well, in his last 15 games... Evan White's hitting 280 with an 853 OPS with three home runs, 14 RBIs, still playing that gold glove defense and hitting the ball hard. Even when he's making an out, he's hitting the ball hard. His walk-to-strikeout ratio is not great, but I think the Mariners see that as a good thing. He makes such quality contact. They want him trying to hit the ball hard. They want a little more power in his game. They've been working extensively with him since he was drafted to develop that. And so they'll take the strikeouts. Um, the M's have, have dropped in the draft standing also. I've heard some people kind of ringing. Well, I guess you can't hear people ringing their hands. Seen it? I don't know. Some people are upset because a couple of weeks ago they had the third pick in the draft. Now they're around 10. A couple of things about this. It's fine. <laughs> It's fine. We need the days of hoping and praying for a top three draft pick to be over. And if you look around, there's reasons to believe that it's not as important anymore. First of all, number two or number three ranked farm system in all of baseball. There's tons of young talent on the way. Second of all, we've seen them draft well the last couple of years, and we've seen player development 
develop those players into exciting prospects. Third, we don't know if the draft is going to be in inverse order of record next year or not. There is talk of a lottery because of the shortened season, and maybe that's not the best sample size, and maybe that's not fair. Do you really want the Boston Red Sox having the first pick in the draft just because they had a bad two months with all their resources? I don't know. Um, Fourth of all, am I on the fourth point? I didn't write this down, but I'm holding fingers up. Uh, The difference between three and ten these days, very minimal. With the Mariners' proven ability recently to scout and identify players, Kyle Lewis was the tenth pick. It's okay. Let's let's enjoy the fact that even with that bullpen decimated, they're winning more games than we thought they would win. I think most people thought they would win 20, 21, 22. They're almost there now with a couple weeks left to go. And we're seeing these really cool things on the development front from these young players. We've got football this weekend, folks. Um, Ignore how different the stands look this weekend. Focus on the field. Enjoy this weekend. Kudos to the NFL for how they've managed this, the decisions they've made, no preseason, how they've executed all of this. The players clearly are taking it seriously. Very low infection rate. Um, Top-notch commitment from the league to tech. Everyone's wearing these bracelets with the computer GPS tracking in it uh, for contact tracing. Um, just focus on football this weekend. We've needed this. We've been waiting for this. Enjoy the hell out of this weekend, everybody. Next week, I'll have a full breakdown and reaction to the Seahawks and Falcons. Thanks for listening. Follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. You can email the show at the Dan Cave Show at gmail.com. I am Dan Viennes. I am your host. Thank you for your support and for listening to the Dan Cave Podcast. As always, I leave you with this. Go Seahawks. Go Mariners. And go Coops.